Hello, my name is Thomas. Thank you very much for downloading this episode of British Culture, Albion Never Dies, Back in Britain 5. It's another of my diary entries. Again, the alphabet of Britishness is coming. However, I've been pretty busy with starting my new job, travelling around and having my, my little adventures as I slowly get to know the UK after being abroad for about seven years. This isn't the first time I've spent so long abroad. I think most of my adult life I have been living abroad, but people often tell me that I'm very, very British, and because this seems so difficult to define, I started this podcast, uh, I guess, a year ago now, maybe more than that, asking what is Britishness. Before I did that, I started to look at a range of kind of media projects looking into Englishness, Britishness, British traditions, and so on. And I really couldn't find anything that satisfied me. And so because there wasn't anything out there that satisfied my own interest in just what is Britishness, I started this podcast to kind of chart my own journey looking into it. One thing I could find was lots and lots of accounts and videos and so on, like UK versus US. And that's something I haven't really gone into, even though you know my wife is American, I spent about 10 months in the US. I think I've visited a couple of times before then. I don't have a, I wouldn't say I have a deep abiding interest in the US. I'm not, uh, I'm not studying the US uh, every day or anything. I'm interested in the same way I'm interested in countries around the world. And I've, I've been studying Turkish for 20 years. It just grabs me. It's one of those things I went, I guess, when I was quite young. And often, you know, you're you have influential experiences when you're young that carry through into adult life. And for me, I guess it was Turkey. Um, but I've also lived in China, so it seems funny to me there's such a glut of UK versus US as opposed to, say, UK versus Turkey or UK versus China. The UK doesn't primarily define itself by the US, and the US does not primarily define itself as not the UK. But there is a wealth of material of varying, varying quality. Some of it I really, really enjoy. For example, on Instagram, there's a Californian girl who lives in London called Andrea Celeste. She's got over 100,000 followers on Instagram. She's doing really well, and part of why she's doing well is because her observations on little quirks about America, little quirks about the UK, I think are really, really on point. She's very responsive in the, the comments when people say, I don't think it's quite like this, or maybe this is actually more regional in the UK, maybe to this region or that region. Equally American suggesting that maybe she has America a little bit wrong. I think she's really good with this. Um, there's a nice little conversation that rolls and rolls and rolls. I like that. Um, especially the admission that you know, the UK is not just one culture. Aside from England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, within England, there's a range of cultures. So, for example, I'm in Yorkshire right now. It has a very, very distinctive regional identity, which can be split into North Yorkshire, East Yorkshire and West Yorkshire, which are very distinct in, in my mind, have very distinct accents, distinct food, distinct, uh, distinct language. Uh, I feel I got language twice, though, accent and language. But genuinely, they're very, very different in my mind. Um, again, perhaps due to familiarity, if you're in London, perhaps you wouldn't see those differences. But again, you are somebody from any country and you get their own subjective experience, which is why this country is like this, this country is like that. It can be... It can be pretty limited in terms of its return. So I like to study countries really on their own terms, 
with some kind of reference to the globe they sit in, but generally I'm more interested in this. So why am I doing this now? Why am I doing a kind of examination of Britain versus the US? <laughs> to be honest, it's inspired by the Bond experience, talking to Calvin Dice on YouTube last weekend. I really, really enjoyed that video. As I say, there's a big glut of... Uh, UK versus US stuff out there. It's a whole internet subgenre. But I just thought this was really, really well done. Of course, James Bond fans are generally a united bunch. And unfortunately, in the modern world, let's say over the last 10 years, we've seen fandoms of many, many big IPs, intellectual properties, kind of getting very fractious. But it seems the Bond community has been able to be pretty united even with the disagreements, uh, so for example, the last film, No Time to Die, got wildly varying reactions, not really by UK or US, not really by any distinct lines. It just, people varied in their reactions. It was a, it was an unusual one, and, uh, and so you got lots of different responses, but people were very respectful, very nice. Um, you know, I post about James Bond on my Instagram, Fleming Never Dies, and sometimes I've made mistakes. I've got things wrong. And people have been so, so nice about correcting me, and I've often edited my post to reflect that and thank them there. Um, yeah, I struck up really nice conversations, and it's a funny internet conversation where somebody's first approach is, hey, you're wrong. But they're so nice about it that you just want to get to know them. Um, so yeah, as I say, this this was a really unusual video. Um, Calvin Dyson was just so enthusiastic, and, and yeah, so... It, what can I say? The Bond experience just had some really interesting insights. So if you've seen the video, great. I am going to talk about it a little bit. If you haven't seen it, cool. Cycle back. And uh, and I'm not going to give any massive spoilers for their video because I say it's well worth... Well, I put it on and I was doing the washing up and then I put it on and I was doing the ironing and then I put it on and I was just watching it. <laughs> I was petting a cat. Um, it was really cool. And the obvious thing I think to start off with was the Bond experience, David Zerinsky was saying that as a British Bond fan, you've got all the stuff, got all the stuff around you if you're in the UK. Um, so last Saturday I went down, and I've already talked about this on Back in Britain 4, meeting uh, from Taylor's of Love and Tie Another Day, Daniel Gaster, and, uh, and I really, really enjoyed meeting these fellows, and uh, you've probably seen the posts with British Bond addict and myself um, at Hammersmith Bridge, and again, kind of replicating some of these poses. It was great fun, and I think we're very, very lucky that we've got so many Bond locations in the UK, because this is where they make them. Um, so I think the Bond experience was asking Calvin Dyson, who's got a great YouTube channel, you know, does it, does it make it lose its shininess. The fact that you're seeing it so often, does it get mundane? And like I say, Calvin Dyson was really enthusiastic and was like quite the opposite. Uh, because you see it in a Bond film, it makes the thing itself just seem so much shinier. <laughs> and again, I like that enthusiasm. For myself, living in Yorkshire, I very rarely go to London. It's an unusual place for me to, to go to. It is a day trip away, five hours down and five hours back. But nonetheless, it is a day trip, and I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed seeing it. And again, I totally agree. It has all its real-world significance. It has its historical significance. Again, the Houses of Parliament are where the grand debates of today are taking place. And yet I see it, and I'm like, yeah, in the 60s, George Lazenby had his photograph taken here, and <laughs> in the world is not enough, the boat chase went down there. I don't know. It just makes it 
cool. It makes it cool. And when I was in California, I went on holiday there. I think my second holiday there, I went up to San Francisco. And again, it's a great city, but somehow that Bond touch made it seem even even better. And I guess Istanbul too, even though I'm, I'm more familiar with that in many ways than either London or, or in any other kind of American city. Uh, Istanbul, because it's got its... Uh, references in from Taylor, uh, from Taylor's with love, from Russia with love, from Russia with love, <laughs> and in uh, the world is not enough, um, and in Skyfall, you know it's got its its moments, and you know Fleming wrote about it wonderfully, and gave what I think are some genuinely really really good insights to the city. So again, it just gives it uh, I don't know, a little a little extra spark. I mean, it's already a very very special city. So yeah, I really got that that we're lucky. If you're British, you've got these James Bond locations around. And if you're into James Bond, fantastic. And uh, as I say, there's one lamppost in London, which if you're a Bond fan, you know that's where George Lazenby took his photo when he was announced as James Bond. And it's really cool. And so we all had to kind of replicate it because you've got Big Ben in the background and the lamppost you're standing next to. And then you've got a kind of toy gun that you're pointing at the camera. And uh, yeah, I posted that, got some really cool comments uh one of them just said are you mentally healthy <laughs> i have asked myself this many many times are you mentally healthy yeah you're replicating this photo from the 1960s waving a toy gun around in in the middle of london it is a silly silly photo i thoroughly admit that i had great fun doing it but it is a very silly thing my my toy gun was just a it's a 3D printed golden gun from, uh, you know, based on 1974's golden gun. So, okay, it's a Roger Moore thing with a George Lazenby location. And I was wearing a tie that, you know, that Pierce Brosnan had wore the same model. So it's all a mashup of Bond. Maybe it is a bit, uh, <laughs> it is a bit strange, but I had a great deal of fun doing it. And, uh, yeah, one of the top comments was, uh, why do you have a golden gun? Dash, I, I asked myself that quite a bit why did i buy this thing it was cheap on ebay it photographs really really well and, and i'm really grateful to the guy who, who printed it and sent me these videos of how to assemble it it's really cool but uh yeah why do, why do i have a golden gun what sickness is this that i feel the need to collect these things <laughs> but actually the most interesting comment surely was from alex lamas who's made loads of really good suggestions before for this podcast um and this got a lot of response he asked how did the police respond um you know he was saying in new york if you were waving around a toy gun at a famous landmark you might not get the best reaction <laughs> from the police but of course that is one of the big differences gun culture is something again if you look at any of these UK versus US kind of online discussions, whether it's on Quora, whether it's on a news article, whether it's on Facebook, anywhere, really, you will see guns referenced at some point. And of course, the, the police in London, you know, if they saw me with this toy gun, they didn't respond. I, I didn't really notice any response. If they had, of course, I'd have stopped. <laughs> I'd, have, uh, I'd have kind of gone over them and say, hey, this is the thing. And to be honest, if I'd seen any around I might have gone up to them before we started doing our poses and saying, hey, you know, this is a toy gun. You can see it's, it's obviously 3D printed. We're just doing these, these silly photos. And they'd probably have had a good chuckle. Um, but I didn't really see or maybe I just didn't notice them. And, you know, British security is often not designed to be particularly noticeable. You can see this, I mean, in my travels around the world. I've, you know, 
been to places where you get American embassies and British embassies, and the American embassy does sometimes resemble a fortress, even the one in London. <laughs> you know, it's uh, a safe city. Um, I say safe enough, I can wave around a toy gun and no one's particularly worried. Um, but you do get sometimes these fortress embassies, whereas the UK, it has it has security. I, I, I trust that. I believe that. Uh, but it's generally quite discreet because most people who are going along are okay. Uh, so no need, to, no need to worry people. It's fine. It's fine. So there's a very different culture around that securitization. And... As I say, in London, there's not a particular issue with guns. Um, of course, there are gun crimes. They exist. But it's to do with frequency. Um, and I think that's a lot of the differences between UK and US culture is any time you set out and say, in Britain we do this, and in America you do that, then you'd very quickly say, but actually in America they do this a bit, and in Britain we do that a bit, because it's more to do with degrees and shades. Uh, so as I say, it's... Uh, it was an interesting one. If the police had been there, if they'd been worried, you know, hands up. <laughs> Maybe not even literally, but we'd have just just said to them, "Hey, we're just uh, we're just messing around." But fortunately, if there were policemen, they saw us, and kind of just guessed that we were messing around. So it was fine. Another thing uh, David Zorinsky mentioned, and again, I've, I've kind of made a list as us. Let's go through the video, is that he was talking about how James Bond is a really uniquely British uh, hero because he's not motivated by by personal things very often. It's it's his job, it's his duty, and as it's his duty, he'll do it. Now, David Zorinsky was saying that he can't think of many, many US heroes who do the same thing. Perhaps there are some. Uh, I think... Uh, Probably Captain America is probably doing it for America rather than some personal vendetta or anything. But there are a lot of American heroes who are uh, motivated by personal personal revenge. Um, I remember when the pandemic started, one of the jokes going around as the pandemic... I was in China at the time, and uh, and yeah, so I, <laughs> I caught it at ground zero. Um, one of the jokes that was going around was, you know, I can't wait until this becomes a major American movie in which America, at this point, really unaffected, would somehow save the whole world. And it would probably star Dwayne The Rock Johnson, and he would be the reluctant scientist who doesn't really want to save the world. But somehow his daughter gets involved, and now he has to save the whole world. And it was just one of those jokes going around on the standard Hollywood formula that it has to be personal. This time it's personal. The last time it was personal. The next time it's going to be personal. They have brought that into the Bond films increasingly in recent years. And actually I've seen that mainly from American fans kind of complaining, saying it kind of gets rid of what's special about him, that he is motivated by his duty. I can see how that's, that gets into British culture beyond Bond. Uh, in one of my episodes... M is for monarchy. I was talking about how even at the very top of, you know, the British institution, the royal family, you know, the Queen was a driver in the Second World War, Prince Philip, very, very capable naval commander, you know, Prince Andrew, sadly in the headlines for the wrong reasons, of course was in the Falklands War, Harry again in the headlines for the wrong reasons, uh, but he was in uh, Afghanistan, and so I say those who are at the top of privilege have had to put their lives in danger in in the front lines uh, quite literally and that's something we see i'd say across the british aristocracy across the establishment um and i and i did a bit of research because i i'm interested i i, I can't resist 
a good Google. I can't resist, you know, going to the old reference book and looking things up and seeing what are, what has been the the American experience. Now, the majority of American presidents have been in the military, but the majority of that, of course, was a long, long time ago. Um, whereas the the more recent American presidents, say Trump and Biden. They're of the right age that they could have been in Vietnam. Now, they were both medical cases, but of course they also both talk about what great sportsmen they were at that age. Um, so, again, I mean, it's not like Boris Johnson has a great war record, and maybe that's a better comparison, because then it gets from politician to politician, rather than uh, you know a constitutional head of state to a a working politician, it is different, there's an element where it's not comparable, but nonetheless, the top of the country in the UK has a duty. Perhaps if we got away from politics to something that is uh, just pure entertainment, you know, the 70s sitcom To the Manor Born was all about a lady who had been, you know, the wife of the lord of the manor who was responsible for the whole village, and when he passes away, they find out there's no money, she has to move out, the house is sold to, oh, uh, a nouveau riche, a businessman who's got the money but doesn't understand how the village works. And so the old lady of the manor takes it upon herself to train him in how he should do his duty. And she's just in the guardhouse at the, but she learns how to control him and how to make him do his, the right thing, the duty. He's got to look after that village. And it's a really fun uh, sitcom. Uh, Penelope Keith is the real star of it as, as the lady. Um, but I think that's a really interesting one because it's her teaching a newly rich guy what are the duties and responsibilities. Uh, so again, how he how he should be should be motivated by his duty. Again, kind of I couldn't resist looking again, looking up some actors. There's David Niven, who's always interesting to look into. He's he's an actor who's referenced in the Ian Fleming James Bond books. He's the actor who Roger Moore rarely looked up to. And he did play James Bond in the 1960s, kind of Casino Royale, the was popular referred to as like the joke version. Uh, so he's the only person referred to in the original novels who played James Bond, which is, which is a pretty cool thing. But he had been a, a pretty successful actor, getting up to be like the, the second lead before the Second World War. When the Second World War uh, started for us in 39, um, the British government said, OK, if you're a British actor in Hollywood, you know, it's not like you've got useful skills, frankly, and your useful skill is being, you know, a propaganda piece for us in America, so stay where you are. But Dave Niven had been a British Army officer, so he left America to come to the UK. He didn't have to. The British government advice was stay away, but nonetheless he did serve in the Second World War and was thought to have had a very, very good record. But again, if we get into UK versus US things, you could very quickly find, say, Jimmy Stewart. Now, Jimmy Stewart, I always think of as the man in It's a Wonderful Life, and he plays the young man who never went to war, right? In It's a Wonderful Life, it's his brother who goes away, and Jimmy Stewart's character has to stay, which is, of course, quite interesting, because Jimmy Stewart joined the U.S. Air Force. Now, he was originally told that he couldn't, because he was underweight. He was also told that he was too old. But he found his route in. He was able to make sure that somehow he was able to play his part and did so very, very well. Uh, again, promoted again and again and again in the US Air Force as a result of his outstanding service. 
whereas I know it's a permanent debate. John Wayne, who played every single hero on screen, again was the right age for the Second World War. He could have served, but uh, was a medical case. And there's you know, people who love John Wayne who say he absolutely was a medical case, and there's people who are very cynical about it. It's just really interesting as I travelled about California. I often saw like John Wayne-themed cafes or stuff like that, He's obviously much loved in California, um, so I just find it interesting that Jimmy Stewart, I mean, that, that's all kind of faded away. He was once the, the poster child of all things that are good and American, and now it's really John Wayne. I guess we're looking at their screen personas uh, more than more than what they did, I have to say. Here I'm getting to the edge of my ignorance, because as I said, I'm not an, an American file, a Columbia file, I guess. Um, I don't know enough, so that's why I often don't touch this. But again, the point is, what's the point? The point is that whilst you can find in the UK we do this, and in America they do that, you very rapidly find, hang on, if you say British people are motivated by duty, well, you could probably find a fair few Brits who are not, and then you can find the Jimmy Stewarts who really, really are. But I find these trends really interesting because it's sometimes this, sometimes that, and that's where the complexity comes in. It's not an absolute, yeah, it'd be a lot easier to say and. In Turkey, there's conscription, so everybody does it. One of the guys who taught me uh, Turkish, and probably my best teacher, uh, was blind. And he had been conscripted into the Turkish army because it's a NATO army and he was needed. Of course, in the army, he was a translator. <laughs> but nonetheless, every man, every man does it. So there's a really clear difference, say, between Turkey and the UK and the US. Hmm... But I did find it interesting, and I do feel there's a lot in this. As I say, it comes from, it comes from the big Z, it comes from David Zerinsky, who's saying that it's a peculiarly British thing to have, a hero motivated by his duty. And uh, I do wonder, when I was in the US, there's, there's a lot of talk about people being special. You know, every child is special. Tell the child you are special. And it really, it's one of those phrases that rolled around in my mind quite a lot, because I can remember, you know, as a child, adult saying, well, you think you're something special? <laughs> it's very accusatory. You're not something special. You just just fit in with everyone else. Just just do what you're supposed to do. You're not special. Just, just do what you're supposed to do. <laughs> so one country tells its children, you are very, very special. And one country tells its uh, children, you're nothing special. Just, just, just do. Um, so I'm pretty sure somewhere there that must filter through into our culture. Hmm... Again, on this thing of duty, um, Rabbi Lord Sachs, uh, who was, of course, a member of the House of Lords, or was uh, when he was alive, gave a piece on Radio 4, our talk radio, maybe our equivalent of PBS, but they have a section every day on religion, a religious leader talks for a few minutes. Uh, I guess about a major issue of the day, provides a religious perspective on, on the world, and Rabbi Lord Sachs did a really interesting one, False Idols, and what is the false idol of today, every day, he said, you know, every era has its false idol, and he, he kind of comes to the conclusion that the false idol of our age was the self. That instead of focusing on our communities, instead of focusing on our worshipful communities and our secular communities, we're focused on self, and we're focused on, you know, self-care, self-actualization, self-discovery, um, selfies. <laughs> I have an Instagram account. It's nothing but pictures of myself and my and my 3D printed golden gun. 
And it made me ponder this. It's a really interesting idea that, that this is the false idol. Instead of focusing on ourselves, we need to focus on broader, broader communities. That was the Rabbi Lord Sachs talking to the British community, saying that we need to think less about me, 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 and more about our societies and our, our interactions with other people. So again, I guess he, he felt that we had a duty of care towards each other. So again, asking that, okay, maybe we have a motivation, duty, but we could do it more. I heard that years and years and years ago, so I hope I articulated it well, because it's been rolling around in my mind for about five years. Um, he was a really interesting guy. David Zerinsky did make passing reference. Again, this is the video UK Bond fans versus British Bond fans, sorry, versus American Bond fans. David Zerinsky talked about British physiques and how British people carry themselves. He kind of demonstrated how Americans have their shoulders and how Brits have their shoulders. It was really interesting. I, I, I didn't spot it so much. I did, I did put on a bit of weight when I was in America, so I'll speak for myself there. And was it because of the food? I mean, food has more sugar in it. I mean, American bread, for example, has sugar added, which it doesn't in most of Europe. It can do cheap bread in the UK, but I think it was also lifestyle. Uh, that It was hard to get anywhere in America without driving. And once you've driven there, there wasn't much to walk. Whereas uh, where I am at the moment, I can go off long, long hikes, and but, but just going to town. I just naturally do a lot of walking, so... I haven't been doing any particular exercise routine. I was, I was focusing on my exercise in California and still putting on weight just because day-to-day -day life is sedentary, I guess. It's, it's not very, I don't know, active. Whereas in the UK, it is more. It is more active. I mean, our, our football fans are very active, uh, often getting into fights. Um, so I guess they have to be uh, literally fighting fit. <laughs> but that helps have clothes fit on you. I did, uh, I say, I've done better losing weight here. But what is something I've really noticed is adverts, actually. It's the adverts here in the UK often star people who look normal. They're supposed to be relatable. Somebody in an advert looks like how you look. Uh, whereas, especially in California, it seemed to be that uh, they are the most beautiful 1% of 300 million people. So whilst the people may have a bit more weight, the people on adverts have so much less. <laughs> of course, you see that in TV shows and drama generally, but I think that comes from a different route. I think in American, actors normally come from the advertising route. So they, tend to, they tend to look good in the film posters, whereas British actors, well, you start off doing Shakespeare. You, know, you, you have to be pretty, pretty smart, pretty educated, and pretty trained to do all those Shakespeare plays, because that's a big part of the British theatre industry. You know, people don't come on holiday to the UK for the weather. They come here for the culture. They come here because they want to see a Shakespeare in the place where Shakespeare wrote it or where he performed it. And, and so there is quite a little industry there. And it just supports all our budding actors uh, do well working their way through Shakespeare's and eventually ending up, I don't know, playing one of the Marvel Avengers or something, or Loki or Loki or whatever. So... <laughs> So you have a very different route into being a star. Hmm. Just something I notice. I did have uh, one more piece. It's not from a video, which is really, really cool. It was. Fr I asked on my Instagram, are there any really interesting differences between the UK and the US? And uh, Aaron uh, Benjamin on Instagram just asked me what's the difference between driving in the US and driving in the UK. And... Aside from the left-right thing, in the U.S., people just drive in long, straight lines. <laughs> but 
the cities were designed for cars. Whereas here, say in the city of York, the Vikings put out where the, the plots of land should be, and people have owned them ever since. So you can't just smash down buildings and build a straight road there or, or whatever. You can't just build a car park because people own it. Uh, and you can find you know, that ownership going back a long way. So, uh, so the roads were not designed for cars, relatively recent things, uh, compared to the towns and cities. So uh, it just tends to be wiggly-wiggly. <laughs> so it requires a very different type of driving. Hence, in the US, you have automatic cars so commonly. Because you just put it in gear and drive as far as you like. And then uh, in the UK... A bit more control tends to be appreciated as you're as you're going down the wiggly wigglies. Speaking of driving, I'm going to move away from the UK-US thing for a bit because uh, I'm in a very very old house. My friend's house is what 170 years old, and uh, as a result, the walls are, are very very thick, very solid. So uh, I was in the bathroom a few nights ago, and I heard a, a bit of a sound, wasn't sure what it was, and maybe I should have stayed in the bathroom. Uh, I went out, and my mate uh, was at the other side of the house, and had heard uh, a bit more of a noise than I had, he had heard a car crash, um, quite a serious one, so I rushed out to see if there's anything I could do, I imagined maybe two small cars had collided, maybe they just needed a, a bit of a push, or a, you know, to, to start the cars, or I don't know, just to just see if everything was okay. Everything was not okay. Uh, a car had been going at very, very, very great speed, um, had come to a crossroads at the same time as a semi-articulated lorry, and so I'd smashed into the side of the lorry. The lorry was okay. The small saloon car, less okay. And already on this crossroads, there was a pub. I guess people had been outside already. The road was just full of people directing traffic, warning traffic as it came towards it to slow down. The police had been called. They arrived virtually as I arrived. And just a whole village had come out of its houses, out of its pubs, to see what was going on, to help out. And uh, I say the police were there. The, uh, the helicopter came, the Yorkshire Air Ambulance. Uh, I understand that... One of the people in the car, I guess the driver, is now under arrest uh, for refusing a breathalyzer test. So, uh, I'm guessing he'd had a few drinks. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know him. I'm not involved. But uh, but just seeing how the whole village had come out uh, to help out was really, really uh, striking. And, of course, all the roads closed down. So I'm trying to get to work the next day. Um, anyway. Anyway, that was... That was the excitement of my week. Um, a bit of a late night. And, uh, and yeah, as I say, then I was looking up in the, the Telegraph in August when I've done a slice of life I've been reading out. So finally, I've seen something that's been in the newspaper. Yeah, the incident was first reported around 10.40pm and uh, one person was taken to hospital with serious but not life-threatening injuries. So maybe, maybe a break. But both people in the cars very, 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 very fortunately are alive. Okay, another another evening. I was down at Bradford Cathedral, um, which is on a site. It's thought that people have worshipped there for well over a thousand years, from when the the northern uh, English were first converted to Christianity. Probably a Saxon cross uh, on top of the hill where the cathedral now is. Um, a few cathedrals have been built there, burnt down by, for example, the Scots. Um, I quite liked my guide. It was a, it's a welcome evening for the cathedral. 
and uh, the guy was talking about how it was burned down the Scots as they were wont to do in those days. I just thought it was really interesting because uh, you know the Scots often talk about the English and the hated English and the English really you know yeah they came down here they burnt it we burnt another one um, <laughs> very different attitude um, lots and lots of fun and interesting facts about Bradford Cathedral but of course you can check their Instagram where often they're showing the, the flowers of the day um, I really like that I follow their Instagram and of course the services are on YouTube I had a gentleman in Bulgaria uh, email me on albionneverdies at gmail.com and he asked me if I could do an episode on British religion and it's something I haven't done and he emailed me many many months ago I'm still waiting for that perfect guest to really lay it out but if in the meantime you are you are gasping for, for such an episode I really do recommend the, the Bradford Cathedral social media channels like YouTube and you know it's it's a modern church you know churches have to do this um, there's lots of unique sights about that cathedral, including the the William Morris uh, stained glass windows. Um, but as I say, I, this is something I want to cover. Is on the long range scanners. S is for something is <laughs> coming a lot sooner, but Bradford Cathedral and, and Church of England that that's coming much much later. I have been pretty pretty busy, as I say, with my new job, settling in. I've had a couple of weeks of training at this uh, academic publishers, and. Uh, and this week I'm starting, I'm starting properly, starting to have my, my new workload. And, and it's been great going in and meeting people. Um, guy randomly just giving me a, a lift home because it takes a long time on the buses for me to get home. So uh, he was driving through the village, so he just gave me a lift. Um, yeah, very, very friendly place. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I have been traveling around. As I say, I'm, I'm kind of still fresh back in the UK and really, really keen to to explore as much as I can as on a train, oh, I can't remember where, I think I was going from Bradford to Leeds, so nice little train journey, and it's really, really interesting, I say, to see this older gentleman with a suitcase, letting people pass as he figures out what to do with it, getting on the train, a younger fella stopping and saying, hey, there's a, there's luggage storage over here, would you like me to carry it, and he's like, no, I'm just still working it out, and the old guy letting a young lady pass, and then finally, I don't know, it's just really nice interaction to see, um, yeah, I was going to Leeds, and there was uh, the train announcer. It was packed, jam-packed. Lots of lots of party people going into Leeds for parties. Um, you know, a child must be in his fifth birthday. The train announcer saying happy birthday to the, the five-year-old on the train, and then yeah, a bit later, okay, happy birthday to the five-year-old and the fifty-year-old who are on the train, and big cheers, and then. <laughs> and then there's a third announcement. Okay, happy birthday to the five-year-old, the fifty-year-old, and there's one more young man on the train. He's he's only thirty-eight, so he's a bit shy about coming forward the first time. So you know, all wish him happy birthday. I don't know. These things just really make a, make a train journey fun. Um, going down to London, I say, went down to see the, the George Lazenby lamppost, um, <laughs> the Bond locations. Uh, it was really interesting. I had to had to walk the full length of the train. Um, to go and get a coffee and come back. And it was just really interesting watching all the different drinking habits of all the different patrons on the trains. So I saw the nice middle-class family getting out their picnic hamper and opening up the, oh, I don't know, the Bucks Fizz, uh, mimosas, you know, getting all their, got their, all their nice little plastic glasses out and having a, having a, a wee little drink on the train. I think it was, uh, was it Honest Trailers? 
did an honest trailer for No Time to Die, and they had the line about James Bond in this film walks the fine line between alcoholic and just being British. There's a lot of drinking on the trains. They saw the the young lads going to see football, so on their football shirts, all their cans of lager. Just thought it really interesting walking up and down the train, seeing the the different drinking habits of the people going down the train. That strikes me because whilst I can't comment on trains in the United States, no experience, I've travelled quite a bit on trains in, say, Turkey or in China, and I just really can't imagine like groups of people drinking either in Turkey, which, okay, it is a Muslim country, but there is alcohol sold, there are people who do drink, and I just don't see that drinking culture, especially, say, on a train, it would just seem really weird. And in China, again, the drinking culture is just so very, very different. I think you'd just be thrown off the train for having one or two, so very, very different. Um, so I was on this, uh, <laughs> I was on this moving bar. Where was I going? Well, I went to a little village in North Yorkshire, where they had a special exhibition on the knitted Bible. I really didn't know what this was going to be. I was actually going to meet an old friend. Um, but the friend had said, there's this thing, I can't imagine what it is. And it was all these dioramas of, say, you know, Noah's Ark, with dozens and dozens and dozens of knitted animals um, in perfect pairs and with a fantastic ark. There was Jonah and the whale, very cool knitted whale. There was the, the four guys lowering their friend down through the roof to see Jesus. And again, all done beautifully with uh, with yarn, and it was uh, really cool. And in fact, this exhibition had expanded, expanded, kind of beyond. It was in a, I think, a Methodist church, and it expanded beyond what the church itself could actually hold, and moved off into another uh, little outbuilding. But it was, I'd say, really cool to be on these, all these different trains, all these different people, and then you end up in this very special little exhibition that's slowly travelling around the whole of the UK. It made me think of the. Uh, the Thirsk Yarn Bombers. So Thirsk is a little town which has become famous for its uh, for its knitters bombing the town with their extraordinary knitting displays. Anyway, one of my great sites that travel around the UK. Um, I, I don't have much more on, say, the UK versus the US. I'm sure the US has knitting. Maybe it's bigger, better knitting than I've ever seen in the UK. <laughs> Probably should go and Google it and find out. Um, yeah, just a cool little thing in a cool little village that I visited. I, I say I have no more about uh, the US and the UK. Very rarely touch on the topic, and I'm very, very open to feedback. As I say, I'm not an expert on the United States. I just don't have the experience. I'm always interested in. If I say this, what do you think? And uh, and if people message me, I do either privately message. I say on this podcast, I try and get back to everybody who messages me. Mainly because I really enjoy it. <laughs> it's just interesting for me. I love these conversations. I say, normally I'm just delving into what is Britishness. Today I'm referring to there. On a completely different topic, my friend Kane, who's done loads and loads of deep dives into British culture with me, has done a really cool deep dive into Christianity in China. And that's on his YouTube channel, Videos by Kane. I'll put a link in the, the show notes. It's called The Tang Dynasty. Christianity and Imperial China Part 1, which as it implies, there'll be a Part 2 coming later, maybe more. Um, I watched that, it's a whole 10 minutes maybe, <laughs> and it was a really well-spent 10 minutes. I know he's done a huge amount of research, but he's condensed it here into what's 
was just interesting in a 10 minute YouTube video and it tells a really interesting story again not was a great comparison to any other culture but it's just interesting in itself and that's the kind of thing I really really enjoy so that was back in Britain 5 thank you very much to, to everyone who be messaging me and I I hope you enjoyed my ruminations but again not an expert on America and those big differences between the UK and the US I don't know that's something that's something on which I'm very open <laughs> to messages and uh, happy to cycle back to this topic. If, if, if you give me like a, a, a gem, a little piece of wisdom, then I'll, I'll, I'll be very grateful because this is something I'm, I'm learning about as I go along. So thank you very much for listening. My name is Thomas. Have a great week. <laughs>